heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. And isn't that true from your own experience? Haven't you felt that rotting of your bones when you are suffering from envy? For some reason, we can't help ourselves from wanting what others have, but really it goes much deeper than simply wanting things, right? We want things not for the things in themselves, but for what the things give us what we think they will give us. So we envy someone's money or their possessions for the pleasure it might bring us or the prestige it might bring us. We envy someone's life or family or marriage because if we could just have what they have, well, then we would be happy. We would be at peace. Maybe then others would love us and accept us. In envy, you, you relish the idea of what life would be like but as the fantasy in your mind grows, the gangrene in your bones spreads because you can't have what you want. And of course, this results not only in inward pain, but also outward strife. What is the source of quarrels among you, James says? Is it not your passions which wage war within your own soul? And then if we're brave enough to look underneath the envy, we will find at their root, they're actually idols of the heart. We want what we don't have because we think it will give us the happiness, the fulfillment we so desire, and we end up worshiping that thing by prizing it above all other things. Worshiping it. Making it into an idol. Putting it in the place of God. And in our passage this morning, this is exactly what we see in Rachel and Leah. We see their envy and ultimately their idolatry. It causes their bones to rot, and it causes chaos in their family. But there's something greater going on in this passage than simply this, this battle between these women. Through all this bitterness, God is ultimately fulfilling his promises to Jacob. We see Jacob's increase in his family, just as the Lord had promised. We see increase in his possessions. Just as the Lord had promised, God is fulfilling the blessing that Isaac had pronounced over Jacob. In Genesis 28, 3 and 4, God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you that you may take possession of the land of your sojourning that God gave to Abraham. But really... God is doing even more than simply keeping his promises to an individual thousands of years ago. What is God doing here in this passage? Well, he is building a people for himself. He is making a people for himself through jealousy, through the sinful actions of Leah and Rachel. God is forming a covenant people for himself. So you remember these 12 sons of Jacob, Benjamin coming a little bit later, would form the 12 tribes of Israel. And the Israelites, poised to enter into the promised land, would read this chapter and remember, we came from nothing. Out of conflict and trouble and sinfulness, God brought us forth for his own glory. And they would remember that Jacob, when he came, when he made this journey to Laban, Laban came with nothing. He had nothing when God promised, I will make you into a great nation. Jacob had nothing until God decided to graciously bless him 
and give him increase, to give him large flocks, to give him many possessions. And in this, Israel would remember where they came from and how they had become what they had become. It was only by God's grace that they had become great. And therefore, they would need to trust him. Not in themselves, but in God if they were to take possession of the land and remain in it. And friends, really, there are some similarities with us who are in Christ, are there not? Are we not God's people? To what do we as the church owe our existence? Are we forming ourselves, growing ourselves? Will God's people increase through our own efforts, through our own ingenuity, through our own strategies? No, we learn from this chapter that God grows his people despite their faulty efforts to grow themselves. And we learn that we owe our complete existence and all the blessings that we have, both physical and spiritual. Indeed, we owe everything to God's grace, which he has lavished upon us in Jesus Christ. And so we must depend on him, not ourselves. So with that introduction, let's look at our passage together. Genesis 30, 1 through 43. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that as we read your word and are instructed by it, you would convict us of sin and you would cause us to rely upon you, not ourselves, for all that we are and all that we have been blessed with in Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Now this is kind of a long passage, but I want to remind you of what Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13. He says, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. And so it's out of a desire to follow that command in Scripture that we give extended periods of time to reading His Word, not just simply a verse or two from this chapter, but reading the whole chapter. So follow along with me as I read Genesis chapter 30. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, Give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of God, who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then she said, Here is my servant Bilhah. Go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me. And he has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, With mighty wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant, Zilpah, bore Jacob a son. And Leah said, Good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad. Leah's servant, Zilpah, bore Jacob a second son. And Leah said, Happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher. In the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, Is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, Then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. 
When Jacob came in, came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come in to me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night, and God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages, because I, have, because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. And Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterwards, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. As soon as Rachel had borne Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, Send me away that I may go to my own home and country. Give me my wives and my children, for whom I have served you, that I may go. For you know the service that I have given you. But Laban said to him, If I have found favor in your sight, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Name your wages, and I will give it. Jacob said to him, You yourself know how I have served you and how your livestock has fared with me. For you had little before I came, and it has increased abundantly, and the Lord has blessed you wherever I turn. But now, when shall I provide for my own household also? He said, What shall I give you? And Jacob said, You shall not give me anything. If you will do this for me, I will again pasture your flock and keep it. Let me pass through all your flock today, removing from it every speckled and spotted sheep and every black lamb, and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and they shall be my wages. So my honesty will answer for me later. When you come to look into my wages with you, everyone that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and the black lambs, if found with me, shall be counted stolen. Laban said, Good, let it be as you have said. But that day Laban removed the male goats that were striped and spotted, and all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, every one that had white on it, and every lamb that was black, and put them in the charge of his sons. And he set a distance of three days' journey between himself and Jacob. And Jacob pastured the rest of Laban's flock. Then Jacob took fresh sticks of poplar and almond and plane trees and peeled white streaks in them, exposing the white of the sticks. He set the sticks that he had peeled in front of the flocks in the troughs, that is, the watering places where the flocks came to drink. And since they bred when they came to drink, the flocks bred in front of the sticks, and so the flocks brought forth striped, speckled, and spotted. And Jacob separated the lambs and set the faces of the flocks toward the striped and all the black in the flock of Laban. He put his own droves apart and did not put them with Laban's flock. Whenever the stronger of the flock were breeding, Jacob would lay the sticks in the troughs before the eyes of the flock, that they might breed among the sticks. But for the feebler of the flock, he would not lay them there. So the feebler would be Laban's and the stronger Jacob's. Thus the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants and male servants, and camels and donkeys. Now here's our, our theme for this morning. God grows his people and gives them increase by his grace. God grows his people and gives them increase by his grace. And this grace is seen most clearly in Jesus Christ. For it is in and through Christ that God gathers to himself a people for himself, a people for his own possession, a covenant people. 
a family. And it is in and through Christ that God grants all the spiritual blessings to his people. It's all of grace. And this grace flows to us through Christ as we accept him by faith. So I want to look at this passage under two main headings. First, we see the increase of Jacob's family in the first half of this chapter. And second, we see the increase of Jacob's possessions in the second half of the chapter. So you see that in this first part of the chapter, it's all about this rivalry between Jacob's two wives, Leah and Rachel, and their desire to outdo one another in having babies. Actually, it began uh, in the previous chapter. At verse 31, as God looks upon Leah, the wife who was unfavored and unloved and had mercy on her. And you can track this conflict, this, this rivalry, through the naming of their children. Now my husband will love me, because the Lord heard I am hated. Now this time my husband will be attached to me. And notice this conflict is fueled by envy and jealousy, which is inevitable if you have a polygamous relationship. You can imagine the stab in Leah's heart every time she caught Jacob staring at Rachel's beauty. Every time he showed Rachel love and favor, it was a reminder that Leah was not loved. More than that, she was despised. You probably know what it's like to have your love rebuffed, turned away. And so Leah rejoices that the Lord opens her womb. The Lord had heard her cries, and now she she could give Jacob something that Rachel couldn't give him. Perhaps finally Jacob would return her love. I wonder what Rachel thought when she first heard that Leah was pregnant. Like she could feel her favored status slipping away. Fear entered into her mind and maybe hoped that she would become pregnant too. But then Leah got pregnant again. And she got pregnant again. And Rachel's envy grew and grew until she just could not take it anymore. Give me sons or life is not even worth living, she says. If she could just have sons, then everything would be better. And Jacob responds to Rachel with right theology, right? But with wrong sensitivity, without any sensitivity. It was God who had withheld the fruit of her womb. And no, ultimately, Jacob couldn't do anything about it. He wasn't in the place of God. Well, Rachel decided if Jacob wasn't in the place of God, she would put herself into the place of God instead. If God wouldn't give her children through natural means, she would bypass God and get what she needed through other means. And so she gives her servant Bilhah to Jacob. We read very little about her. She is simply a pawn in Rachel's plan to get what she wants. We read only that she's a servant, that she has given to Jacob, and that she bears him sons. And look again at how the names of the children emphasize this conflict. Uh, Rachel says, God has judged me and heard my voice. Now by this she means that she has been vindicated. She interprets God's providence as an affirmation of her behavior, which is something we never must never do. You can justify all kinds of things if you think all that matters is that it works out in the end. Well, with her second son, 
She exclaims, with mighty wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister, and I have prevailed. She is locked in this battle with her sister for superiority, for love, for acceptance. And Leah's in on the game too. Can you imagine what she was thinking? Hmm, Rachel got her servant to be a surrogate mother for her. Maybe I can do the same thing. Maybe I can have sons for Jacob in this way as well. One named Gad because what good luck I've had, and the other named Asher because of how happy she is to be favored once again. And then we have this odd story of the mandrakes within this story. Mandrakes were thought to have been an aphrodisiac. And so, of course, Rachel wants these mandrakes Reuben had found. And evidently, this knack for swindling runs in the family. For Leah sees the chance at a bargain. So Rachel offers the night with Jacob for the mandrakes. And look at Leah's language to Jacob when he comes on. This is just crazy, isn't it? You must come into me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. Jacob bought Esau off with his red stuff, and now Leah buys Rachel off with her mandrakes. And Leah conceives and bears Jacob two more sons. And then God, who had withheld the fruit of Rachel's womb, remembers her. He listens to her prayers and opens her womb. And she gave birth to a son and named him Joseph, saying, God has taken away my reproach, and may he add another son to me. Now, I want you to notice a few things about this part of the story. First, I want you to see the sinfulness of God's people. This is God's covenant family, right? But notice their sinfulness. They are conniving. They are working the angles to get what they want. They're using one another. And they're using God as an excuse for doing it. All the parties involved, with the exception of these servants, are guilty of very serious sin. None of them can serve as models for us in this. None of, us, none of them can serve as models for how to live in the midst of conflict. Rachel, for instance, should have been content with the love that her husband had for her. She cried out to Jacob, Give me children or I shall die. But what should she have done? But cry out to the Lord for mercy, to hear her desperation for sons. And Jacob, Jacob was a model of sinful, passive leadership of his family. He failed to lead his wife as he should have. And, and why didn't he pray for his wife as his father Isaac had done for Rebekah. For we read in Genesis 25, 21, Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer. And Rebekah, his wife, conceived. And another example of his passivity is just going along with what his wives tell him to do. Here's my servant. Take, take my servant. Have a child with her. And like Adam, who took the fruit from Eve and ate, so Jacob takes the servants of his wives and goes along with their plans. And this is not the type of spiritual leadership that God has in mind for the covenant family or for families in general. Rather, Jacob should have led his wives to trust in the sovereign and good hand of God to provide what he had promised. He had promised that he would bless Jacob and make him into a great nation. He should have trusted that and led his family to trust in that. And he would have 
saved his family a lot of heartache and pain in their lives. Notice the sinfulness of God's people. And we see these things in our own lives, do we not? Men, do you feel satisfied with the leadership you are providing for your family? Aren't you all too often passive in your leadership rather than leading to trust in God's sovereign and good and gracious hand? Aren't we envious of one another? Using one another? Do, do we not sin in some of these very ways that we see in this text? Rather than trusting God, we take things into our own hands. We depend on ourselves and our own ability to bring about the desired end. Rather, we should trust God. We see the sinfulness of God's people. But second, I want you to see in this part of the story, the grace of God. Right At each point of their sinfulness, God stoops down and gives them grace. It's mind-blowing that he would do this. Despite the sin of everyone involved, what do we see God doing? Remembering his people. Answering their prayers, even as they are sinning. Giving them mercy when they should have received destruction. You see verse 17. And God listened to Leah. And look at verse 22. And God remembered Rachel. And God listened to her. What is this that God would listen to the prayers of these conniving, selfish women at all? What is this that God does that he listens to our prayers? He hears our prayers by the same grace he gave to them. With every word we speak to God, we need a healthy dose of grace along with it, or else we will never be heard. God's grace is when he gives us blessing instead of curses. It's when he gives us not the bad that we deserve, but the good we haven't deserved. And this is what he gives us in Christ. He gives us grace, grace, and more grace. As our sin abounds, his grace abounds all the more. Notice one more thing in this part of the story. I want you to see thirdly the sovereignty of God in fulfilling his plan. His sovereignty in fulfilling his plan. God uses this conflict between Leah and Rachel. He uses their envy-driven behavior to begin forming the foundation of his covenant family. His people. The nation of Israel. From these 11 sons and Benjamin, who comes a little bit later, come the 12 tribes of Israel. Right? Abraham is becoming a great nation. God is fulfilling his plans to grow his covenant family into a people for his own possession. And he formed this people in order to show their separation, that they were set apart, that they were different from the other nations. He formed this people that, that, that they would know they exist, not by their own power or will, but by the power and will of God. Now we know that there are those who are ethnic, ethnically Jewish. They are naturally descended by Abraham, by birth, but we know it's not the children simply of, of the flesh that are children of the promise. But who is it? It is those who are of faith who are children of Abraham. God's plan wasn't simply to save a, a an ethnic people for Himself, but to save a particular people from every tongue, tribe, and nation, and to bring them into His family. And God is doing this in and through His church. For if it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham, 
then they must hear this good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ in order to believe and become a part of this family. They must hear of the descendant of Jacob, the descendant of Judah, the descendant of David. They must hear of Christ who came to purchase a people for himself, who came and dwelt among us, who lived a perfect life of obedience to the Father, who died on the cross for sinners and rose from the dead, who has purchased our forgiveness by his blood and brought us into the family of God. You must hear and believe this. You must hear and believe in Christ because this is how God is forming his family. This is really a greater culmination of what we see here in this chapter, God building and growing his family. This is how God is growing a people for himself in the church. He's still going about this work even to this day. And it's a good reminder for us as well. As it was a good reminder for the Israelites, who would read this later as they were poised to enter into the promised land, that we do not exist as a church by our own power or will, that we have not entered into the family of God by our own strength or even by our own decision or even by our own goodness, but by the power and the will by the grace of God. Now, in the midst of this ugly political season, we might begin to have some questions. Is the sky falling? Have you asked that question? Is this nation doomed? Is America crumbling before our very eyes? And to those questions say, well, maybe. I don't, I don't think so. Could be. I don't know the future. But I want to ask you this question. What if it was crumbling before our eyes? Would God be any less sovereign? Would God's church fail because of that? Would God's people cease to exist? And to these questions, there are clearer answers. God is fulfilling his plan to gather his people to himself through Jesus Christ and the proclamation of the gospel. And nothing can stop him. Nothing can stop God growing a family for himself. Nothing can stop God growing his church. Jesus came to gather his sheep, and what does he say? No one is able to pluck them from my hand. God is building his church, and nothing will thwart his plan. Now this is a great comfort to God's church, and it's a great comfort to us as individual members of it. For if God is building his church and he can't be stopped, then we can be sure that every stone, every brick, will be securely set in its place. We can be sure that if he is preparing a place for his church, then there's a room with our name on it. We can be sure that if he is growing a body, his body, that each member of that body will be strengthened and nourished by the head of that body, which is Christ himself. So in this passage, God increases Jacob, which results in this foundation of the 12 tribes of Israel and has extended through time and all the world to include everyone who has come to him in faith. A small sapling then and a great oak with many branches now. But God is not only increasing Jacob's family here, he's also increasing Jacob's wealth. Look at the second part of our story that begins in verse 25. Jacob was anxious to get back home. He had gotten what he had come for, right? A wife from among his own people. In fact, he had gotten more than he had bargained for. Two wives. 
After 14 years of hard labor, he now has two wives, and then adds some more time, and he has many sons. But Laban isn't quite ready to get rid of his cash cow. He knew that he had been blessed by Jacob's presence. He had found it out by some sort of divination, as if he couldn't simply look over his flocks and see how Jacob had prospered him. But God's just making good on what he had promised Jacob. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. Now, it's kind of debatable whether or not Laban had blessed Jacob or cursed him, and yet God displays his grace in this, blessing Laban because of Jacob's presence. Well, Jacob, like any... He felt like any employee who earns his boss a lot of money but never seems to get in on the profit. So Jacob says, when, when am I going to start providing for my own family? It's time to go home. But Laban is persistent. What can I give you to stay, Jacob? Now Jacob knew if he took something from Laban that he wouldn't be his own man. He would be indebted to Laban. And so like Abraham his grandfather, Jacob decides he will take nothing from anyone else lest someone say they made him great. What he had would be by his own merit, or rather by the merit of God. So Jacob devises a plan. He would continue to pasture Laban's flocks, and his wages would be the speckled and spotted goats and black lambs. And Laban agrees, but of course he couldn't play fair. So he had his men take out all the male goats that were striped and spotted and all the black lambs and sent them a long way away with his sons. Then Jacob devises a plan that seems to make no sense at all, right? Have you ever been confused by reading this story? He puts sticks in front of the goats and sheep as they're mating and thinks that this will make their offspring come out speckled and spotted and lambs black. Uh, but we can understand this, right? We sometimes do things that don't make much sense because that's what mama taught us or because that's what we heard some old wives' tale that if you did this and this, then it would turn out this way. Well, I think that's what's going on here. Jacob thinks he's the one who has outwitted Laban by his grand schemes, by his strategies, but really it's God who outwits both of them. God had outwitted Laban, and God used Jacob's superstitions to do it. Jacob not only had a lot of goats and sheep, but he also had the stronger ones. See verse 43, perhaps one of the key verses in this chapter. Thus the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants and male servants, and camels and donkeys. Just as God gave Jacob increase in his family, so now he gives him increase in his possessions. He is growing Jacob into a great nation. And God did it all sovereignly. Not by the merit of his people, but in spite of their demerit. God blesses Jacob with many children, despite the envy of his wives, despite the taking their servants uh, as his wives. And God blesses Jacob with many possessions, despite... Laban's deception and Jacob's own self-confidence. God does it all despite the attitudes and actions of his sinful people. So Jacob plundered Laban just as years later God's people would plunder their Egyptian slave masters before returning to the promised land. Now what, what can we learn from this part of the story? Let me show you a few things. 
to take notice of. First notice, the mistreatment of God's people. Now, of course, Jacob can't claim complete innocence. He had been a deceiver, as we have seen. But now, with his marriages and with the flocks, Laban has become the deceiver. Jacob is cheated in both instances, treated unfairly. And we ought to expect this as God's people. Maybe you've heard this question before. If your church closed its doors, would your neighborhood care? If your church closed its doors, would your neighborhood care? One pastor said he wants his church to be so vital to the community that if they closed down, the rest of the neighborhood would be upset. And really, I mean, in one sense, that's a really good challenge. We want to be such a blessing to Rollsville Elementary School, to the neighbors in our area, to the town of Rollsville, that if we were to have to close down, they would miss us deeply because of our kindness to them. We should seek to serve our community in such a way. And yet I also can't help but think of something else, though, that sometimes things might turn out quite differently if a church is fulfilling its mission. So I think about some of the New Testament churches like the ones who had their houses plundered, like those believers who were persecuted for their faith, thrown in jail, like churches in parts of the world where Christianity is not tolerated. In, th in those places, the churches are seeking to fulfill their mission, to proclaim the gospel, to love their neighbors, and if they close their doors, the community wouldn't be upset. They would rejoice all together with one voice. So I say all that to say we should not be surprised if we are hated and mistreated by those in the world. Now we shouldn't give unnecessary offense, right? We shouldn't be the offense. The gospel of Christ should be the offense. We should be good neighbors. We shouldn't be jerks. We should serve. We should show the love of Christ to everyone around. And yet Jesus tells his disciples if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And so as we go about our lives, brothers and sisters, this is a, a helpful reminder to us from the story of Jacob. As we proclaim the gospel, as we seek to live moral and upright, godly lives, God's people will be mistreated. We should expect that. And here's the second thing. Notice that God blesses his people despite being mistreated by the world. Jacob is mistreated, yes, but what happens? God uses Laban's attempt at cheating Jacob to actually make him prosper. Now, in our text, we see that this is clearly material prosperity, but that's not what I mean for us. I don't mean that God blesses his people materially because of our mistreatment. Rather, God uses the material prosperity of the Old Testament saints to teach us something about the spiritual blessings we have in Christ. I don't know what the future holds. I'm not typically one of those doom and gloom guys. I do think that things will generally get worse before they get better, before Christ returns. But I don't know ultimately if we Christians in America will face hardships and persecutions and mistreatments because of our faith. It may happen. It could happen perhaps in our lifetimes. It happens to believers around the world now. Now, we perhaps are mistreated in some minor ways, but I don't know that we'll ever be persecuted. But I can tell you this. If we are, 
mistreated for our faith. If you are mistreated for your faith, you will be blessed in spite of your mistreatment. If we are persecuted, we will walk home together after being beaten, talking about how amazed we are and thankful we are that God counted us worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. Do you remember that in Acts? If we are persecuted, we will sit side by side in our jail cells, cells singing praises to Jesus Christ, our Savior. If we are persecuted, we will know that there's inheritance waiting for us in heaven that far outweighs any difficulties we may face in this life. Brothers and sisters, in this life we should expect hardships and challenges and even to be mistreated, but along with the mistreatment will come comfort and strength and endurance, mercy for each new trial coming down from the hand of the Father. Now notice one more thing from this part of the story. The blessing in the face of mistreatment comes not by our own power or ingenuity, but by the power and grace of God alone. It's not an earning of God's blessing by our suffering. It's an earning of our blessings by the sufferings of Christ our Savior. Jacob thought he was pulling the wool over Laban's eyes, but really it was God who was working all things together for the good of his servant Jacob. And why was that? Why was God blessing Jacob? Why was God working all these things together for his good? Because he chose him and set his love on him from before he was even born. God called him according to his own purposes, and in response, a genuine love flowed back from Jacob's heart to God. Now what is that verse of scripture that we hold so dear as believers? that gives us hope in the midst of troubles and trials? What is our stronghold in the midst of confusion and sorrow? Isn't it Romans 8:28? Of course, there are many others, but this one, we keep being drawn back to it over and over again, right? And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. And this promise is bound up in the fact that God finishes everything he starts. He chose us. He called us by his grace. He justified us by Christ. He sanctified us. He glorified us. We can be sure of it because in Christ it is as good as done. But let us be sure of this. The spiritual blessings of God come not to us because we're strong enough or because we have enough faith or because we got the award for being the greatest Christian if you are in Christ, dear friends, you are forgiven of your sins, every filthy one of them. You are reconciled to God. He is as close to you as he can get because of Christ. You are a child of God. You have an inheritance kept for you in the heavens. And all of this is because of the unmatchable grace of God and because of Christ who purchased it all for you by his blood. So remember this, God grows his people and gives them increase by his grace. And this grace is seen most clearly in Jesus Christ. Just as God blessed Jacob and gave him increase, so he will be with us in all things. Even when we make a big mess of it by all our sins. Even when we get cheated and mistreated, God stands over it all and has promised to bless you in Christ. Let's pray together.